Welcome to Pros Tinted Glasses. I'm Katie. And I'm Bailey. And today we're really excited to be talking about Firekeeper's Daughter by Angeline Boulay. Yes, we both read this book a while ago and have been kind of waiting for the right time to talk about it. And it's finally here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I read it back in March, which I think was not very long after it was released. It was January of 2021, correct? Uh, nope, it was March 16th of 2021. Once again, foiled by um, not looking up the publishing dates ahead of time. I really thought it was the beginning of the year. Dang, so we both read it, like, right when it came out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually checked my, my book spreadsheet. I read it on the 20th, so I guess I read it the week it came out. I'm, I'm not, check- do you remember, like, do you remember, like, what, um... Prompted us to read this immediately? Yes. <laughs> no! I don't either. I don't know if it was like a like a TikTok thing or if I just like stumbled up upon it. But for me, like the cover is absolutely gorgeous and striking I'm... and it really drew me in. And I I feel like we spend a lot of time telling kids don't judge a book by its cover, even though that's almost exclusively how I decide what books I want to read unless it's been recommended to me. Okay, I didn't read it until April. The end of April. So I feel like um, but I knew I bought it a while before I read it, probably because you saw the cover and you were like, this is gorgeous. I'm reading it. And then you were telling me to read it. Probably. Uh, so I did and finally I have, read it. I have such a like distinct memory of while I was reading it, I was um, putting up that little piece of wallpaper in my apartment at my entryway and I was listening to it while I was finishing that wallpaper up. So it's just really distinctly tied to like a place in time for me. Which happens sometimes with books, especially with really good ones. Right. Um, I did just get it back today because I lent it to my friend Emily for her wedding. She used books as table decorations and the book without the book jacket fit the color theme. (laughs) Well, congrats, Emily, on your wedding. And glad that you utilized Bailey's great taste in books for your decor. So, uh... I'm really excited to talk about this book. Once again, I did not listen to the audiobook, so my pronunciation on names, uh, I've already asked Katie like twice how to say Donis, Danis? Donis. Donis's name. Um, Mm -hmm. So just just bear with me when I mess up Donis again, please. (laughs) And yeah, so I did obviously listen to the audiobook, so my pronunciation should be accurate to the audiobook. It's been a little while since, I mean, obviously since March, since I've read it. But I think I remember. And what I did learn through Priory is that not all audiobooks check every single word with the author. So I am hoping that they are accurate. But if not, we would love to hear from you and be corrected. Yes. Firekeeper's Daughter was a Reese Witherspoon's YA book club pick, which is very exciting. Mm-hmm. I honestly think that may be where I heard about it. I don't really follow Reese's YA book club, but it gets so much press and media attention that I think it, maybe it just like came across my feed and I was like, yes, want to read that. Yeah, and I'm glad you did because it was very good. Mm-hmm. And but, it's yes. also very excitingly going to be adapted for Netflix with Barack and Michelle Obama's production company, Higher Ground. Which is very exciting. I... um. 
as established, both love and hate adaptations. I love them because I want all of them. Um, and I hate them because I want them to be good and they never are. <laughs> so my, But don't worry, my hopes remain high that this one will be well adapted. Yeah, I have a lot of faith in the Obamas in terms of what they're choosing to produce. So I'm going to I'm going to be hopeful on this one. Yeah, I'm just walking that line right now because Wheel of Time comes out really soon. And I'm like, I want it to be a great adaptation. And mm-hmm. I just don't... maybe it's time for me to, to start Wheel of Time. I feel like I'm trying to undertake all of these big series right now, but I don't know, maybe it's time. I'm pretty sure it comes out on November 14th. Katie, you don't have time. Okay, yeah, I do not have time. I I probably have time to read, like, the first one. Do you think it's going to be just for the first one, or? No, I think you'd be fine if you read, like, the first or even the first two. There's so much fucking ground to cover, like. <laughs> we'll see how that goes, how I feel. Um, Basically, if I am getting into an audiobook, like, immediately right now, I am able to read it, but I've been really busy at work and distracted, and so if it's not, like, the exact right mood, I have not been able to get through it, so. We'll see how it goes. Gotcha. Uh, yeah, so let's get back to Firekeeper's Daughter, and we'll start by remembering to do our spoiler warning this time. Uh, there's really no lead lead in on this episode. We're just going to go ahead and it's going to be spoiled. Yes, it is definitely going to be spoiled. We're going to basically go over the whole book. Not, not too in detail on the plot, but we're going to touch on things that we find interesting or worth chatting about. And going along with spoilers, we also want to say there's going to be a major trigger warning for drugs and sexual assault and also some violence. Yeah, it's not, it's violent, it's not too gory violent, but there is a lot of drug abuse and the sexual assault does happen. So if that's something that you aren't in the headspace to listen about today, come back to this one when you are or or skip it entirely. Just want to make sure you know what's coming. Yep. So with that business out of the way bailey just tell me a little bit about how you felt about this book overall i really really loved it the first time i read it i couldn't put it down especially near the end um i do feel i know one of our biggest things we've harped on on this podcast a lot is when there are teenage protagonists that don't act like teenagers Mm -hmm. that are either they're aged super young but they act like adults or what have you and i felt like this book does a pretty good job of having like realistically about to start college aged characters Mm -hmm. i mean there are some parts that are obviously a little crazy but like i i feel like that the characters felt true to life to me yeah i 100 percent agree i i think donis and particularly felt very fully realized as a character and so did jamie who we'll touch on in a little bit they they seem to have really grounded personalities, grounded hopes and dreams, uh, grounded interactions with each other. I really enjoyed it in a way that I don't I want to say it's like rare in YA, but I think that this is a, a very good example of how it can be done just so well. Right. And I do feel like this is perhaps part of it is this is one of the YA books we've both read recently that's not like fantasy. So that could definitely play a role in in how fleshed out and realistic the characters feel for their age group is that it's not in a fantasy setting. Uh, But it does have hockey, which is fantastic. Yeah, it feels very targeted towards us specifically. Uh, Hockey is 
like a major plot point all the characters are involved in and excited about hockey. I was very excited to read a hockey book. I was too. And I liked that um, uh, sometimes I feel like in books where a character plays like a sport or they do something extracurricular and wow, we're going to ignore that in high school. Um, sometimes that gets lost once the quote unquote real plot starts happening. And so hockey was partially involved in this, but I feel like the author was able to keep Donis's love of hockey and involvement of hockey in her life, like going in a very natural and realistic way where it wasn't like now that part of this plot is about hockey. The only part of hockey we're focusing on is this part of the plot. Mm-hmm. And going along with that, they, like it's also not a sports book. You know, the hockey is not the focus. It is just something that our character is heavily involved in without it being a sports book, which I really like. Yes. I I was glad hockey was in there. I, I would have taken any sport. I'm, you know, pretty pretty into sports in general. But, like, it was great that it was hockey. Yeah, she also was... ran a lot, which I was like, oh, Bailey runs. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, we've established that. <laughs> <laughs> how are you uh, feeling? Time, Just sidebar, no, how are you feeling? No. Okay, never mind. Never mind, I won't ask. We'll keep going. I was just about to say at the time of recording, I'm one week out from my first ever 26.2 full marathon. And so I'm pretty, you know, pretty in my head about it. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I believe in Bailey and I know that you're going to do great. And oh, I understand thanks. your stress about it, though. So we will move on forward. Skipping over running, we can talk about... Um, I, I was glad that the entire book, it's not really billed as a thriller, but there are some like intense moments. And I was glad that to read a book that was not strictly a thriller, but still had some of those elements of the clock ticking. Yeah, I think I did a really good job of merging sort of like a contemporary literary style with a mystery thriller style without really bowing fully into one genre or the other. I really love when books kind of transcend genre, and I think that Firekeeper's Daughter does that really well. Um, and I also think there was just a really interesting mix of things like Donis's life, the mystery, and then also all of these tribal politics that are going in, on in the background, which probably we'll touch on a little bit more in depth. There's just a lot to, to capture your attention, and I really enjoyed it. The thing is, none of those elements were included for no reason. If like the tribal politics did play a role in how the mystery played out, and also they play a role in her life in general. Like they shape how her life plays out. So it was very cool to see all of those pieces come together in the story. And I agree. I love when things transcend genre. Genre. There's definitely a space for strict like true to party genre books, but sometimes it's great to read something that's all over that just works like Firekeeper's Daughter does. A hundred percent. So we're just going to give a really quick, short overview of what happens in the book for those of you who haven't read it, which I imagine at least some of you have not, but should. So our main character, her name is Donis Fontaine. And she is half white and half Ojibwe from the, her tribe is the Sugar Island Ojibwe tribe. And she also 
one of those words Bailey was referencing up at the beginning refers to like the tribe or like that side of her life as Anishinaabe. Yeah. Did I just get that wrong? Or was Anishinaabe not no, I believe tribal people? Anishinaabe, um, when I was looking at it, because obviously this is something that I'm not super familiar with, is a term for um, Native and First Nations people from that general region in the Great Lakes. Okay, cool. For some reason, I just hardcore second-guessed myself when I was trying to explain that. Um, but that, yeah, is another term that she used. And she she feels very torn between her two com- communities. Her father was Ojibwe, and he was a very prominent like member of the tribe. And he was also almost going to be like a professional hockey player until he got into an accident that ruined his career. And he is the firekeeper whose daughter Donis is, Levi Firekeeper. And then her mother is from a very prominent and wealthy white family. And the two sides of her family and community just, like, don't really interact. Um, and so she's, she's very torn between the two. And she does spend a lot of time going between the two parts of the community and the two parts of herself depending on the situation. Uh, and she is about to head off to college. She has big plans with what she wants to do. Um, but she does have to change it because her mother's mother had a stroke and is now in an assisted facility where she goes to visit every day. As Katie said, Donis runs and then she runs to the facility to see her grandma. Yeah, so she's got this like family side crisis going on and then there's also the community side crisis where uh the anishinaabe people are like the community is being ravaged by meth and drugs and to the point where she is at a party and her best friend's ex-boyfriend who was involved in drugs is like trying to talk to her friend lily and ends up shooting lily and then himself uh right in front of donis which is revisited throughout the book because Donis is struggling to cope with what happened. Um, and she really loves her best friend, Lily. And that part of the book in the beginning, before everything happened, I really enjoyed the way that they were, the two of them connected. And, you know, Donis was friends with Lily and would tell Lily what was up, but still was like, okay, you have to make your own choices here. And part of that was with Travis, this ex. Um, But after this happens, the new boy in town, Jamie, is there and and reacts in an interesting way that Donis notices. And come to find out, um, Donis is about to get swept into an undercover investigation as a confidential informant for trying to figure out how these drugs are affecting her community. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of the bulk of the story is her dealing with the fallout within her um, indigenous community, within her white family, and of course about these drugs and being a confidential informant. And she learns a lot of hard truths about her friends, her family, her community, and herself. Right. Uh, so before we go too deep into it, uh, that that's pretty much the general summary if you haven't read it. And that way, some of the things we will talk about will maybe make a little more sense. And then when you do go read the book, as you should, things will make even more sense. 
Yeah, 100%. The only, like, two quick things I wanted to touch on before we kind of dig into it is... And Bailey and I were kind of talking about this before we hit record, and she doesn't remember it the way I do, but I'm pretty sure this book takes place in, like, the mid-aughts. And the the reason I'm so sure is because Donis uses some very specific slang and now I can't even remember what it was but it's like the one part of this book that drove me a little insane she would be like oh yeah it's hella something or whatever and you know people still say hella occasionally ironically but I think I don't even know if that's the specific slang term but it was driving me insane just like how much like midnight slang there was. I think she also used the term biatch, which I don't think is something that people say unironically nowadays. And it seems like so grounded in the sense of time without being like explicitly referred to. I really did not notice either of these things. I tried to flip through the book to look for it. And Katie's like, it happened. And I was like, I don't remember that. Um, and I theorized that maybe sort of the ambiguous uh use of slang and stuff was to help prevent it from being too aged because you know if you like read a gossip girl novel now now it doesn't hold up because of all these dated references um but i i don't know maybe it was just i'm sure when i go to reread it and i see the slang the first time i'll be like oh that's exactly what she wanted that's what she or that's what she meant like that's what you meant katie the Mm -hmm. slang word so See, I, I, I thought it was very grounded in a time and place. I don't think it's really... I think the, there's, like, not a big focus on technology, which I think could serve to not date it too much. I Bailey flipped through and found a reference to a, a Blackberry, which I think probably supports uh, my mid-naughties um, theory. But she also mentioned that the government was using Blackberries for a long time, so it could be later than that. I don't know. It was just something that really lent us, like, this sense of this is not taking place, like, right now in, like, our modern... Like, it's not taking place in 2021. It... I'm just getting... uh, I don't know if you've ever watched Netflix's Sex Education yet. They have, like, cell phones, but they also dress... uh, more not modern I, it's it's very like it's it's a pointed decision to like place in a non-specific time and place yeah they do that also with um trash reference incoming with riverdale <laughs> they use modern technology but just like they're from the 50s and so it's like this blend so it it seems out of time and i think they did it with the Chilling Adventures of Sabrina as well, which sort of, but sort of does not take place in the same universe. Yeah, I haven't watched either of those, so can't comment. Um, um, I mean, with Riverdale, probably a good choice. Sabrina was pretty good, though. Yeah, I, I definitely think we've established that Riverdale is not something I'm ever going to spend any time on. Uh, which is fair and also a tragedy. Riverdale is the most balls-to-the-wall, insane, hilariously weird show on television. But anyway, circling back to Firekeeper's Daughter. Yeah, that sense of time or out of timeness was really interesting. And I I think I said I had two things, but the only other thing I was going to talk about was how I really loved the way it handles really sensitive issues without being, like, sanitizing or, like, moralizing about it. 
Right, and it also... I, so I don't... This is challenging to say. I don't want to say that it, like, didn't handle... It handled it well or badly. I think it just straight up handled it realistically. And I think the way that we see Donis and the way we see her mom react to things represent two different ways that people deal with trauma. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes that's not always... Um, going to look the same for everybody and that representation made it feel more real about how all of this was happening but it also didn't try and gloss over the fact that these really bad things are happening to these characters and they are going through rough times and it also as you said katie it didn't try and make a point out of oh she reacted this way like you should quote should is in air quotes you guys can't see me but like yeah. I think it, it does a really great job of, I feel like I'm just going to kind of be reiterating what we're saying, but taking something and I'm just going to use an example from the text. So one of the things that, that makes Donis feel disconnected from the Ojibwe community is that she is not an enrolled member of the tribe at the beginning of the novel. And that's because her father is not on her birth certificate. And so she doesn't have the documentation that she would need to become an enrolled member of the tribe. And it's something that I think she pretends that she doesn't really want, that she like doesn't think she needs that validation. But later on in the novel, when they find all these documents that her father prepared for her enrollment before he died, that will allow her to enroll. She like, there's a very clear sense of how much it means to her to be able to take that step. And especially once they find those documents, so like a dozen elders from the tribe also come forward with like references to support her enrollment. And you can just see how important it is to her. And so that's this like huge, wonderful thing that's happening in her life. But it also is what allows um, her to not be able to get justice um a little bit later in the novel she is sexually assaulted by a lawyer but it happens on tribal ground and since she's now an enrolled tribal member the federal government or the police are not going to look into it because it's quote-unquote tribal business but of course they don't really have the resources to pursue it as a tribe yeah as a tribe like with the tribal police because the perpetrator was not a member of the tribe. So this thing that meant so much to her is also the source of like a great tragedy. And I think it does a lot of, there are a lot of instances in the book where there is that balance when things happen. Right. Which is just the, another way of showing the dichotomy that Donna's has between her half white and half Ojibwe life is that she can't get the justice from either side. That she can't get because she's not enough of this thing or all of that or etc. So it's, again, it's just another way that it's showing this stuck between two worlds thing. But it is this scene where these elders came forward with the affidavits in support of her becoming enrolled in the tribe was very powerful. Especially as in the beginning, her and Lily are both not enrolled members of the tribe. And so that's one thing that they have that bonds them together when something is happening in the tribe there is if i'm recalling correctly a scene where people make a 
tribe members make a comment about how they can't vote because in a tribal matter because they're not enrolled members. Um, and mm-hmm. so when she is enrolled after Lily's death, it's even more of a powerful moment to mean something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of this dichotomy between Donis and Lily, even uh, from the beginning. So Donis has very pale skin. And I think, I don't know if I would go so far as to think she's white passing. I don't know if that's made clear in the text, but she definitely has like a very pale skin, whereas Lily is much more like tan and brown. And she makes a comment early on in the book where neither of their skin tones are like, quote unquote, right for the tribe and that they both feel ostracized for it. Like there's a, a, a range of shades that seem like quote unquote Ojibwe and they're, but they both fall outside of it. And so they both feel ostracized because of it, but of course on different ends of the spectrum. Right. And then even after Lily's death, it's a lot of the way that Donis like sees the world and, and handles the things that she goes through are through the lens of what Lily did or didn't do. And like whether or not, um, she thinks Lily experienced it. Yes. This, I I also think reading this book, there were moments where I learned a lot about like the everyday customs that Donis represents from her particular Ojibwe tribe on Sugar Island, um, including in the morning, the way she starts her runs. Um, I was just looking at it in the very beginning. She... Now I'm going to flip because I lost the page. <laughs> and the pages are... St- she puts a pinch of Sema at the eastern base of the tree. Um, things like that where it's just written into the novel, these experiences of her everyday life, how she's still, as you said, Katie, like showing that this culture meant something to her, even though in the beginning she tries to play off the, oh, it's okay that I'm not enrolled in the tribe. She is still practicing a lot of these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, you know, when all the elders come forward to with the affidavits, it shows how involved she is in her tribe, despite not being an enrolled member. And actually, in one of the pretty much the climax of the book, the elders are the ones that band together to rescue Donis. Right. On the ferry with all the cars. Oh, that was so... That moment, I was, like, white-knuckled on the edges of the book, like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, Get so we out. didn't go, we didn't quite go into this into, in the summary. We were trying to get a higher-level overview, but let's, let's dive into it a little bit more. So, uh, which part? The part where she gets kidnapped and handcuffed to a shack in, uh, the bed in the shack in the woods? Yeah, exactly that part. <laughs> <laughs> so, throughout the investigation, Donis and Jamie, who is this undercover cop that is on Donis's half-brother's hockey team, and that's kind of who she partners with, and they end up being um, undercover as boyfriend and girlfriend to protect her identity as a confidential informant. So they're going through this investigation and finding out that the ties to like who's behind all of the meth is a lot closer to home than Donis would have expected, and her half-brother, Levi, turns out to be involved. And when she goes to kind of gather more information, uh, Levi's mom, Dana, drugs her tea and then helps Levi and his idiot friends kidnap her 
to this like trailer in the middle of the woods. Oh, and don't worry because they also brought Jamie there because they tasered him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so she and Jamie are like chained up in this trailer in the woods. It it got very intense very fast. Uh, yeah, it really did. How did she get out of the trailer? So basically, they kidnapped her then because they think that Donis can help them make meth, which she actually probably could if she were so inclined, because she did learn how to make meth as part of her confidential informant training. She was also already extremely interested in, like, plants and the uses for them and things like that, and was very knowledgeable about chemistry. That was one of the things is that uh, because of her uncle David, who was a teacher at the school, she was, like, very interested in the sciences, and... Uncle David was actually previously involved in the investigation, and that's part of why Donis decided to get so involved, was because she was like, you know, I I need to figure out what happened to Uncle David. Um, But Donis is able to leave the trailer because she's like, okay, fine, yeah, I thought about it, and I will help you guys. And then she's like, hopefully I can escape or at least use Jamie's watch that he had. It was a satellite watch to let Ron, his supervisor, know where he was. Mm-hmm. And then as she's escaping, that's when the tribal elders take it into their own hands to help her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they realized that she had gone missing and were, like, calling around looking for her. And they f- they spot her on the ferry. And it's really, it's like an old people fast and furious there for a minute. It was very fun and exciting. Like, Donna's literally, she literally jumps out of levi's car and into one of the elders cars it's very cool but then the you know the elder tells her to run and she does run and then her fucking hockey coach who's in on this whole thing offers her a ride and it's like i can help you get away and then it's like haha i was in on this the whole time i'm part of the problem rude yeah he's i mean he's the mastermind if i'm not mistaken I just don't want to give him any credit because I don't like him. Okay, that's fair. Because she trusted him and, you know, grew up playing hockey for so long. She had this relationship with the coach and then he did all of this. And not only that, but, like, he was involved in the attempts to try and cover up tracks by framing Donis, by putting the hockey pucks full of meth in her room and also having Levi move all this money through their joint account. Yeah, so Levi and Donna, since they're half-siblings, they had a joint account for a while, and Donna was a little older than Levi, and so since she was 18, he was moving the money through their account. Like, he couldn't have done it as a minor, so he was doing it in her name. And yeah, the coach had basically recruited some of his hockey players to help distribute it, and they were doing it by, like, at-away hockey games. They were, like, distributing them within... the the new communities as well and like bailey mentioned they were doing it through these fake hockey pucks that had like tribal insignias on them right dream catchers i believe dream catchers yeah but it was because they had these like they got them printed but they like weren't regulation weight and so now they just like gave them out as like a a thing and turns out they weren't regulation weight because they were filled with meth Mm mm-hmm So there's that, I mean, cool, I guess. I'm sighing and shaking my head. I was also tempted to make like a, um, 
The skids and hockey players joke. Letter Kenny. Okay. Yep. Still not watched it. My brother was trying to get me to watch it too. It's it's honestly gotten to the point where I feel like I've been told to watch it so many times that my brain is just being a little bitch and is like, well, no. Not like contrary. Just being a contrary bitch. Anyways, Donis does um, manage to escape by making Coach crash into a tree and injuring herself really badly. And kind of they go back to get Jamie and um, Donis wakes up in the hospital because, you know, she kind of died a little bit. Yeah, I think she like legit briefly died and she sees this vision of Lily. And I, I don't remember if there was any... Like, overly sentimental stuff with Lily saying, like, it's not your time. But it was definitely those vibes, if not that exact It was the equivalent of the, like, you saw the orange... The orange. The light at the end of the tunnel. (laughs) Is the light at the end of the tunnel orange, Bailey? Nope. I was flipping through the book to find the moment and the word orange was on the page and it jumped out. I have no (laughs) idea why. Oh my gosh, that happens to me all the time. I constantly accidentally type things that I'm saying or hearing or reading as opposed to what I'm intending. Uh, No, there's no word spoken between her and Lily. Uh, But it's it's those vibes. So that was really the, the peak of the book. And from there, sort of, we get to... We get the, like, oh... I don't want to say happy ending because it's very clearly not, but we get the resolution. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that resolution, while it's good in some ways, there's also some really upsetting parts of the resolution. Like the fact that, you know, she finally, quote unquote, gets to take place in a blanket party, which in the beginning of the novel, she'd been begging Aunt Teddy to let her go. And Aunt Teddy was like, no, I want to keep you out of this as long as possible. Mm-hmm. And a blanket party seems to be when a bunch of tribal members, I don't know if it's just women, yes. but a bunch of tribal members basically kidnap a dude that hurt one of them and cover him in a blanket and beat him severely because it's pretty much the only form of justice that they are able to enact. Um, and yeah, Donis really wanted to go to one at the beginning of the book and Aunt Teddy was like, no, like, be grateful that you don't need to be involved in this. And then, of course, after Donis is raped, and then, as we talked about, she unable to get justice through traditional methods, they stage a blanket party for her rapist. This is one of those things you said, Katie, that, you know, she learns a lot of things about herself and her tribe. And like I said, in the beginning of the book, Donis wants to be involved in these, and Aunt Teddy is trying to protect her, but... Donis is like 17. She can't see past that. She only knows that she feels that she's not connected and that she wants to be a part of this. And then at the end, she kind of realizes that getting to be a part of this is not necessarily something you want. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's further, excuse me, the point is further hammered home when uh, Granny June takes Donis to a ceremony for women in the tribe who have been hurt by men. And it helps them, like, acknowledge and release their trauma. And I think it happens every year. And Granny June mentions how grateful Lily had been every year that Donis was not at the ceremony. And so that's how Donis learned that Lily had also been 
affected by sexual violence. And it um, makes her just another example of how she feels connected to Lily even after her death. Right. But again, it's another... Uh, that that kind of leads into one of the things I wanted to talk about, about the women. There are a lot of female, like, women characters in this novel that are all doing their best to support one another in their own ways, in the ways that they can, and blanket parties, and then also this, this ceremony of the burning of the flowers to let go is are some of those ways that these women are trying to be there for each other however they can because a lot of times the rest of the world's not being there for them. Mm-hmm. And I feel like we as the readers are going on this like journey of realization as Donis is because Donis is never explicitly like a pick me girl or anything like that. But she, she starts off the book to me, she seems really much like a guy's girl. Like she's really deeply entrenched in hockey. Like she played hockey on a boy's team. She's close with her brother and his friends. Really Lily seems to be her only like close female friend. And of course she's close to her aunt and to her grandmother and mom and and granny june but she just seems very entrenched in this like guy's world and she also uh does seem especially when it comes to like the hockey players girlfriends um she calls them angler fishes which i think the equivalent of like what the community i know in hockey would call them would be puck bunnies when we were talking about jamie he is on the hockey team and she becomes partners with him in this investigation and they their cover is that they're dating and so she gets like teased for being an angler fish even though she used to use that as like a derogatory term and she like laments having to hang out with all of the other hockey girlfriends and they end up giving her this gift of a jersey because she's like part of their community now and the the custom is to put the boyfriend's last name on the jersey, but they take the time to realize, like, oh, Donis is actually associated with not just her boyfriend, but also her brother's on the team. She's friends with a lot of guys on the team. She has played hockey with a lot of guys. So instead of, um, like, kind of assigning her to one of the team members, they put her own name, Donis, on the back. And she's really, like, touched by the gift and the thoughtfulness and kind of makes her rethink her view of them. Right. And I think it's just, and it wasn't even, it didn't come off as too pick me to me because it seemed more like she just didn't share the interest. And so she was like, I just don't, I'm more interested in playing hockey. And so to me being like hanging out with the hockey girlfriends doesn't cross my mind because I'd rather observe things from a hockey player's point of view like when she's watching a game and stuff which yeah it's definitely like a little bit of a I'm not like other girls sort of mindset but also because she just it strikes me more as a genuine love for the sport that she was involved in and less of like a I'm better than them because I know hockey I think there's a little bit of like, oh, these hockey girlfriends are silly because they're just here for their boyfriends versus like, I'm here for the hockey. I don't think it's like super derogatory or like super pick me, but she does have like a clear division in her brain between like herself and the girlfriends like before she gets to know them. Right. I I guess my thought could be sort of distilled down into it's less derogatory and more just dismissive. Like she doesn't 
spend energy or time like thinking about why they would do what they do until she's spent the time with them. I think that's a really good distinction of she's just dismissive of them. Until she spends the time with them and realizes like, oh, yes, they don't know as much about hockey. They don't have any interest in playing, but they, they like care about it in their own way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that was a really good word choice. So yeah, it's fun to see Donis like realize uh, what she realizes about this the community of women around her, and not just like she's not just part of the white community and part of the Ojibwe community. She's also a part of this community of women, right? And she's not just like a hockey player or a hockey girlfriend. She is as representative by having represented by having her own name on the back. She is both a player and a girlfriend. Mm-hmm. and a family member and mm-hmm. so i i liked that and i also you know from a like hockey fan standpoint i like that instead of continuing to be derogatory towards like women who are only into hockey because their boyfriends or hot men play that these women got redemption a little bit in donis's eyes and then in the reader's eyes in that same way of being like you know these are fully realized women these are people who have a whole host of reasons for doing what they do and and it's not just because the hockey players are hot or because they're dating a hockey player yeah i think that that is something that would have been really easy to leave them just as like functionally plot devices and i think that probably would have been done in a lesser book and so i really appreciate that journey that donna's went on and that we got to go on with her Right. And that's what I was going to say. It feels like that was sure there are a lot of other discoveries and journeys that Donis goes on in this novel, but that was a smaller one that we also got to go along with her for. And so I enjoyed that. Um, And it is easy in a lot of media. You see those women get left as just like plot devices or just blown, dismissed because their interests don't align with like the main characters. Yeah. Uh, other really great female characters are, of course, Aunt Teddy, uh, Theodora. She is Donis's father's sister, so she is a tribal member. And she has two small children that Donis is really involved with and invested in. And actually, one of the main triggers for Donis to agree to be part of the investigation is thinking, how is this going to, like, this problem going to affect what are their names? Perry and Pauline, I believe. How is this investigation going to affect Perry and Pauline if, like, we aren't able to stop this meth problem? Right. It helps give her a concrete sort of, like, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing feeling. Um, and Aunt Teddy is one of the characters that not to say that the other characters in this book don't pay attention to Donna's, but aunt Teddy is one who's like, she's got so much going on of her own, but she's always reaching out and making sure that like Donna's is there. And when Donna's is getting really wrapped up in this investigation and going to duck Island and searching for mushrooms. And Teddy is like, you're being really distant. Like what's going on. And then she breaks a promise to Teddy that she was going to be there for something. So aunt Teddy shows up at Donis's house and is like, excuse me, what the heck? We need to have a talk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she, she, like you said, has all of this going on, but 
makes Donis a priority. And I, I get the feeling that Donis does not feel like a priority in many people's life. And so that is a very important relationship for her to have. Right. And that's what I don't think any of the characters, like I said, are like treat Donis. Well, obviously, you know, the bad guys do. But um, like the other characters that we see that care for Donis don't treat her bad. But Teddy makes sure to make her feel like I'm here for you, for you. Not out of any other sense of like, oh, I should do this. So Aunt Teddy was one of my favorite characters that we got to see as a sort of, you know, like side character who was there. Mm -hmm. And she was a really great like foil for Donna's mother, Grace, who Grace got pregnant at 16 and again was part of this rich white family. And so it was kind of hush hushed and... Grace, like, clearly loves Donis, um, and she also clearly loved Donis's father, but she makes kind of consistently, I think, like, bad or neglectful decisions, and, like, midway through the novel, we learn that after Grace found out that she was pregnant, she was trying to tell Donis's father that she was pregnant, but they got into a fight, and Levi, like, went off and had sex with Levi Jr.'s mother. Mm -hmm. And then Grace tried to confront him and they got into a car accident. And that is the injury that caused Levi Sr.'s to lose his career. And she was really upset and mad at him. And she lied and told people that he was the one driving the car. And then by the time that she realized that she should have told the truth, nobody would believe her. And that kind of pushed... Levi Sr. into Dana, Levi Jr.'s mother's arms. And so it's Grace kind of like bit off her nose to spite her face and ended up losing the man she loved and depriving Donis of a more present father just by making these like stupid teenage decisions. And I feel like from what we know of Grace, she doesn't ever really lose that like impulsive kind of bad decision making. Right. She's just stuck in that cycle and wants better, but is having a hard time making it happen, which is a very human thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I love that we get this foil of like Teddy is, I mean, obviously Teddy is not perfect, but she is kind of framed as this like good maternal figure. And then we've got Grace who is like doing her best, but is like deeply flawed. Yeah, Teddy is definitely framed a little bit more as, like, the no-nonsense, the, like, well, okay, let's get it done. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, they are a good foil, good people in her life, and I, like I said, I think one of the strong points in this book for me was the way all of these women were portrayed as nuanced individuals that all have their own strong suits and their own problems, but in the end, they're all just doing the best that they personally can to help each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. So, um, yeah, that was strong. Anything that you think that maybe wasn't, like, your favorite part of this book? Or, like, I don't mean, like, plot points. There's a lot of plot points I obviously don't like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of the plot points were, I mean, they were well done, but they were hard to read in places. Yeah, yeah that's... It's very realistic to life, but it's still, as we said earlier, there's a trigger warning for a reason. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, I honestly loved every second of this book. It's one of my earliest five-star ratings of the year. I know Bailey doesn't rate books, but uh, I rated it five stars. <laughs> I, I do rate them on my, um, my spreadsheet. I don't rate them on Goodreads. Oh, really? No, I'm not telling realize... you the... No, you don't have to. I, I understand your methodology. Have you, like, talked through it on the podcast at all why you don't really rate? Oh, um, basically can be summarized as, like, I don't think that you should necessarily, like, quantify enjoyment. Uh, so I don't rate books or beer. If you are a beer drinker and you're familiar with Untapped, if I use Untapped, I don't star rate things. Because I've read some bad books and I've drank some bad beer, but it, part of it comes down to, like, you shouldn't yuck anybody else's yum. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that – I think that, like, star ratings to me feel objective in my little scientist brain. And I don't think that rating books or beer, i.e. I, things that you enjoy, are that objective. Like, it could be objectively a very bad book in terms of, like, a lot of different things. But if you enjoyed it, great. I'm glad you enjoyed it. And I don't think that you should allow that to be, like, diminished by a star rating when you like think about it because you can read some books that are bad and still like like them like objectively the aragon series is not a very well written series but i still really enjoy reading that world and so like objectively i would rate it much differently than if i was trying to like quantify my like enjoyment of it so i i don't really rate books and i don't want to contribute to like the rating culture Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that is a really, it makes a lot of sense to me. And it goes the other way too, right? Like you could read a book that is like technically super, super good and well-written and it can, you can just not enjoy it and that's fine. Um, I, I definitely use like a kind of a hybrid of like how much I loved the book weighed with how like quote unquote good I think it is, but it is honestly, it comes down to like a gut reaction when I'm reading books and I do it more for myself in terms of like looking back and, and trying to see, cause my brain is a sieve. Um, I forget information very quickly. And so I want to know, like, did I like this book and would I want to go back and read it again? Right. And I, I don't want to like, you can rate a book and or a beer or a movie if you want. Like if that's something that brings you enjoyment, do it. I just like personally don't. And I do know it drives our friends that crazy that I like don't rate <laughs> beers. Yeah. <laughs> so. But anyway, with that little explanation, I did rate the Firekeeper. Or I did rate Firekeeper's Daughter five stars um, and really loved it. Yeah, I uh, I did. Like I said, I have been rating stuff in like my spreadsheet for things um i didn't realize you could like i'm inputting info into a google form guys like, i didn't realize i could rate anything as not an even number of stars for like the first four months in a fucking form i created <laughs> um but also like i i don't know i either rate things like four five or one there's really no in between for me i don't think yeah my rating scale is about like a 3.25 to a 5. And I mean, we don't have to get like deep into it. Basically, like 3.75 is like, I read this book and it like, I enjoyed the experience. And then it only gets like, I really liked the book or I really didn't like the book from there. I think I've only rated one book below a three star all year. And I've read a lot the of hunting books this year. It was The Hunting Wives. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, <laughs> that is actually the only book that I have 
uh, rated on Goodreads in like five years. And then previous to that, the only other things I rated were um, SJM's books. And they also all are like <laughs> one and two stars. Yeah, so, Bailey has to feel really strongly to to give it a rating on Goodreads. <laughs> and the hunting wise, I do feel really strongly about. But anyways, I just checked my spreadsheet for Firekeeper's Daughter and I did give it a five. Hell because yeah. I, I just, this is one of those books I'm going to suggest to anybody um, that wants to read it. And I really liked it. I think that does, some people think it comes off as a little slow at times. And I wonder if I didn't, because I also read a lot of adult contemporary. Mm-hmm. And so like, to me that, that pacing is fine. But when you look at it from a YA perspective, mm. the pacing does seem slower than what you would find in a lot of YA novels. Yeah, that's a good point. That's what I was originally going to circle back to in terms of like, I loved it, but I can see people getting into it and not expecting the pace to be as slow and disliking it. I think that's why The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue can be kind of controversial is because, again, another book I absolutely adored, uh, but it is, it's a slower paced, character driven novel. And if you're going into it expecting like a YA fantasy sort of plot structure or pacing, then I can understand how you might be disappointed with it. And I think that applies here as well. Yeah. And I think that's that's basically it. It's like if you're coming at it from a YA pacing, it, it's a little slower, but that doesn't necessarily mean a, it's a bad thing. I think the book translates really well to an adult audience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really loved, I thought it was very mature and interesting, the central romance of the book, which we have touched on briefly, but basically the lines between fake dating and like confidential informant and police handler blur and Jamie and Donis do really truly fall for each other. Um, and at the end, Jamie wants to be with her, but he's also been struggling with his own identity this whole time he has been he was adopted and so he is not familiar with his tribal roots or like where he comes from and Donis has seen how much he struggles with that and she loves him also but is basically like dude you have got to figure yourself out before we have a chance at working which I think is such a mature choice for like a YA protagonist to make yes I was going to say that um, I I liked that it was like fake dating without feeling too much like a romance novel fake dating trope. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but it was very much like fake dating. Oops, now we actually like each other. <laughs> yeah, I think that taking all of these like plot ingredients and like more or less the same characters and sticking it into like a romance novel could have been really like cute and fun and funny. But this was much more grounded in reality than kind of your like fun fluffy romances tend to be and i really appreciated that take and how you can take tropes and do different things with them i love that right um i do question the possibility of a 22 year old being a high school student when he's like an fbi agent stretched my suspension of disbelief but just a little bit yeah i i actually was thinking about that when i was prepping for this episode i was like i hate that trope generally of like old people going into high school undercover and expecting no one to like flag it my my one half-hearted devil's advocate argument would be 
that we are so conditioned to think that like 28 year olds are high schoolers from television that if maybe he wasn't like a hot hunky guy like clearly a 30 year old um that they just kind of went with it (laughs) right it's what i like again it it's believable enough but it is just like a little bit i'm like "Mm, is it because of hollywood and we all just think like young adults are high schoolers like yeah yes the answer is yes so that that's fair that and but it it works in the story and um despite the never been kissed vibes so that's okay it's hardly worth really the time spent on it but i couldn't let it go also worth pointing out that donis knows that he is an uh what what do they work for they're not fbi are they it was like a task force. Uh, Ron is definitely FBI. Okay. FBI or whatever government agent they are. She knows that he is a government official before they even enter into the fake dating arrangement. So, like, ethically, at least it's not like she thinks he's a high school student when they get romantically involved. Oh, okay. Uh, Jamie works for the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Okay. And then Ron is the senior agent in the FBI. Okay. So, uh, yeah. It, you're right, though. That is good to point out. I didn't even think of that. Like, the ethically, like, she knew mm-hmm. he didn't play this fake dating thing as, like, you should fake date me. Okay, now that we're together. Um, By the way, I work for the federal government, and I'm um, investigating your community. Mm-hmm. So I, I do appreciate that she had that knowledge up front. I do think, I think she maybe thought or just like didn't have confirmation that he was 22 and not 18 until kind of later in the book. But she at least knew he was minimum 18 and I'm sure she suspected he was older. I feel like there are a couple of times where she catches that he like reacts differently than like your average starting college age kid would to a situation. Um, stuff like that, but but yeah. Anyway, I hate the trope where it's like, oh, they like quote unquote fall in love, and it's like, by the way, I am older, like I am an adult, and you are a high school student, or like I am a government official, and I've kind of been using you the whole time, and you are clueless. Um, right. So I appreciate that they did it like the quote unquote right way. And I also feel like there are so many elements of the relationship that were like wrapped up in the investigation that I it makes me love even more that at the end Donis was like we need to figure out our own journeys like I do love you but like now doesn't seem to be the time and I really appreciate that that was like part of it instead of a lot of times I I feel like especially in in YA like you ignore all those red flags because at the end you want the the, like couple to be together Mm -hmm. and and they are despite all of those things whereas this novel was like yeah you're right like not everything here is completely um on the up and up so we're gonna take our time to figure everything out on our own Mm -hmm. and i love that donna's also has sort of figured out what she wants like she had been slated to go to college at lake superior state university where there were like dorms named after her grandparents because they were rich white people i don't remember what she was originally going to study do you remember bailey no that did not stick uh, in my brain. I think it may even have been, like, to be pre-med 
or something. But then as she goes through this investigation and really reconnects with like her Anishinaabe side, she realizes that she like she wants to kind of do that, but she wants to do it more. She's just going to go to the University of Hawaii instead and study um, ethnobotany, which is like a traditional medicine program that kind of marries modern medicine with like traditional um, tribal like the use of the use of plants of as medicine right not even just like tribal in the sense of like yeah just a more i don't want to use the word homeopathic because that has a whole host of things tied to it but just like the uses that plants yeah the uses that plants can offer as a medicine in addition to you know still using some non-plant-based medicine and and i think that's just once again like showing a huge sign of growth for a YA protagonist is that she's like changing her mind and realizing she wants something and so she's gonna go get it yeah agreed 100% I think any any last thoughts not really other than just um clearly we love this book and I feel like we didn't really even scratch the surface in terms of like plot elements and not even close. um, Yeah. So I would just highly, highly recommend if you haven't already that you read Firekeeper's Daughter. Yes. Uh, And then I will say the book does touch very briefly on residential schools in which children of First Nations and indigenous tribes were taken from their family and taken to these boarding schools often with very violent situations and ending in death. And there has been no recompense from the governments for doing this. Uh, the book doesn't get into it too much. It just kind of touches on it and then they move on. But we will include some links in the episode description so you can learn more about all of the stuff that is coming out about what these residential schools did in the United States and Canada. Because I don't think that we did say it yet uh she donna's tribe is right on the border of the u.s and canada mm-hmm. yeah and so they i think they live in both countries or travel between them pretty yes they have a spe- specific sort of like citizenship for um crossing the state line or state lines i'm sorry the uh border country borders so we will include that yeah, the more I hear and learn about it, the more, like, devastated and horrified I am. And I can only imagine how much more deeply it, it must affect people that have actually been affected by them. So definitely take the time to learn about them and see if there's any charity that resonates with you to donate to or um, other ways that you can make an impact if you have the resources available. Yeah, and on that, uh, you know, we are going to keep uh, reading out here and suggesting books. You know both of our TBRs are truly endless. <laughs> truly. Just, truly. I, it's honestly rude that they keep publishing more books when I have not gotten a chance to caught up, catch up. You can't say things like that because there's like at least two books in November that I absolutely want to read. So you gotta, you gotta tell the publishing industry they can stop after those come out. Okay. All right. Thanks. But this is, consider this your first warning, publishing industry. We're coming for you because remember, we are right. And <laughs> we should say it. Pour yourself a glass of wine. Let's start reading in the
between the lines Never know what we might find Yeah, it could be magic and me, Katie Phillips. Our theme song is by Anna Voss, and our logo is by Baby Truth Collection. If you have a minute, please rate and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. It'll really help us out. And we'll see you in a couple of weeks to talk about Pride and Prejudice.